Startup Podcast, an inside perspective on the startup ecosystem in the great state of Connecticut. I'm your host, Michael Kaufman, and I'm sitting here with these two other gentlemen, Eric Francis, David Menard. Let's get started, boys. All right, so how's everybody doing today? Just fine and dandy. Yeah, on this uh, August afternoon. <laughs> we got a concert going on downstairs. We should probably get down to that as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah. That's right. If you hear some background music, it wasn't necessarily our pick, but... Uh. <laughs> We're 30 floors up and we can still hear them. They're jamming down there. <laughs> so I've been hearing some good news from people who have been on the podcast before. Recently, I heard from Civic Lift and Evan Dobbis, who, uh, who said that he'd been contacted by people who listen to the podcast, including some people who are interested in uh, interviewing him for publicity and potentially investing in his company. Hmm. So it's nice to know that we've had an effect on someone that uh, was our very first interview. Also, not to toot our own horn, but I've been hearing that we are, quote, getting better and better with each episode. We have a long way to go, guys, but we're getting better and I better. Think, I think that deserves a doot, doot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we'll defy those expectations right away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's not increase our expectations out there. Um, so what's going on? Well, the other one was uh, Macroscopic Solutions. It was on a few weeks ago. They are doing a Kickstarter, so anybody wants to look them up, it's a for a petrographic analyzer for geoscientists. Now, you may not know what that is. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I'm not a geoscientist. <laughs> but uh, one of the great things about having macroscopic solutions on board before, Annette Evans and uh, Mark Smith, was that, was that you know we had two scientists here discussing products that they had built for their field uh, in, in geology, namely, but wound up affecting a number of other fields, the macropod. It was fascinating. It really was fascinating to listen to them talk about it. It's an area that we don't get much exposure to. So now they're putting together this Kickstarter and the petrographic analyzer takes uh, unique photos of. Okay, let me read it here. It takes photos of a geological thin section, which represents the crystalline matrix and composition of a particular rock type. Now, what's interesting is that this was only limited to certain types of really expensive microscopes. The product that they're working on, which I think is derived from some of the macropod technology, allows you to do it with a cell phone. They can attach it to any optical device that can take a picture, hmm. which is, which I may not understand the full science behind it, but that kind of development, if you think of moving from a hundred thousand dollar microscope to a cell phone, mm-hmm. and that allows scientists to use these things. And it sounds incredible. What they also want to do is they also want to use this for examples in the classroom. If you look on the Kickstarter page, it talks about how the uh, these pictures result in scientific evidence that impacts real world things. How they determine uh, climate change and uh, other aspects of of education, including history. Hmm. So, anyways, it's an interesting read. If anyone wants to go to the Kickstarter page, a well uh, worthy topic, worthy subject to kickstart. If anybody's interested in investing, and we're big fans of the Macropod uh, Macroscopic Solutions family. Mm-hmm. I will have to say is that I did. Um I did have a uh, a friend who was uh was listening to the the podcast and he's actually a geologist and he's starting to get into uh startups and everything like that and he goes 
that that one podcast was like startups and geologists in one. It was, it was you can't get that anywhere else. I mean, he really he he understood everything that they were saying and everything. And I was like, yep, well, that's why we did it. You know, we do it we do it for those moments. My extent of geology in my life, I would say, will span all the way to South Park with uh, Stan Marsh's father, Randy Marsh. He is a good geologist. <laughs> He's also Lord. Yes, yes. <laughs> I am Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. What else we got going on? I, I we we talked briefly about Tesla. What hemorrhaging four thousand dollars each vehicle? Yeah, yeah. I still want to buy one. We all want one. <laughs> it, we, and we talked about their new uh, charging device, which they posted up on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And then the internet had fun with it. They they uh, put some Marvin Gaye playing over it, and uh, it turned something really incredible into something kind of sexual. <laughs> no, it, it, it was it wasn't kind of sexual. It was completely sexual. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I mean, for those who haven't seen it, the charging device is a snake-like robotic arm, which by of its own accord finds the uh the input on the car in which to connect with and the arm moving by itself uh looks kind of creepy it's not an arm by the way it's just a cylinder too <laughs> well the internet had their fun uh it's not surprising um and also you mentioned something interesting as well dave what were you you had a couple topics well one of the things that i read was in the wall street journal last friday they had discussed the Internet of Things, and specifically smart homes, and how it wasn't ready yet, that essentially there was too much technology in the home for your average consumer to deal with. They had t- they talked with a number of uh, engineers and such who had hired Control 4 or companies like that to go into the home, install their uh, home automation solutions, and then wound up on the phone with these companies five times a week because certain things didn't work or they're on their glitch. And it wasn't uh, really user accessible. Also, they mentioned that uh, programs that you could do yourself, uh, so like a Nest thermostat. Well, this guy specifically mentioned, I got a Nest thermostat. I'm an engineer. I put it on a shelf and I never installed it. You know, it was a gift. Uh, you never used it because it wasn't worth what he called the fiddle factor, which I can understand. If you actually try to buy like a Philips Hue set of lights or Wemo or any of the, the hubs that you can use to try to connect all these things together so you can manage your lights, you can turn your heat or air conditioning on and off, uh, set to a certain temperature, uh, you can reset the locks on your doors, uh, all of these things. It's, it's not easy to put them all to work together. And even if you can, there's no guarantee it's going to stay that way. It takes one automatic Wi-Fi update to send everything down the hill. And then you have to go back and redo it again. So it's really uh, in a state where people who like to fiddle with these things perhaps enjoy it. I know that at my firm, our IT director has a really enjoys trying to automate his home as much as possible mm-hmm. doing it himself. But he runs into problems. All, he runs into problems all the time. I have a Nest thermostat at home, uh, and I've put in a few of these things, but I haven't done a lot of them, and I've tried to keep it as simple as possible. But I, I, I think that people, while they love the idea that technology is going down this road, this is another example of why so many people like Apple, mm-hmm. right? Because if because Apple generally doesn't put out products that aren't going to work easily and aren't understandable. And for these things to get adopted in a home, you need to have a single ecosystem where everything works smoothly and the customer doesn't have to be a computer scientist to figure it out. So anyways, I thought it was interesting. It also talked about contractors and how a lot of contractors had started to put in 
uh, home automation systems in their in new buildings they're building, and, and now they've stopped because they had too many problems. I, I think we're at that stage where it's early adopters, evangelists, and you know it's 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 a simply that the tech is there. I'd say the user experience, the user interface, just isn't there yet. Yeah, I mean, I know <laughs> it doesn't really appeal to me. I mean, the Internet of Things obviously is a big thing right now. Um, people are a lot of money going into it, a lot of different fields. I mean, it's the sensorification of everything. That's mm-hmm. the big thing right now is that I think, and I've talked to a couple of uh, sensor people that they say that that's where it's it's at. Right? And that's like where the innovation really needs to happen. Um, you know, sensors are still pretty costly. If I were going to make my house smart, I will have to say is that I would want somebody to come in do it all and then teach me how to do it. And I mean, I would want to have, I mean, yes, it's something's going to go wrong. Something I am going to have to call somebody and get on the phone with them and, you know, uh, troubleshoot it. Um, but I definitely fiddle factor. It's that's, that's me all day. Like I don't want to have to fiddle with anything and you get, I mean, I, I honestly, I have a Kindle in my bag. I have a tap. I have two tablets at my house and I, I just, I mean, today I actually just plugged in my iPad. Um, uh, it was, it was so dead that it literally took about 30 minutes to get to like 1%. And it was just because my computer, the core of my computer isn't charging my computer anymore. So it's, you know, and sometimes there's just too much tech where it's, you're not, um, but at the same time, I would love to have a smart home. I actually just listened to a, uh, a podcast today, which is, and I'll get to that, but it was for a company that is only doing the vents for HVAC. So they're just doing smart vents. See, that's part of the problem though, right? Yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting that they picked that area, but mm-hmm. then their vent software winds up having to work with Nest and mm-hmm. then having to work with Philips lighting mm-hmm. and so on. So the billion dollar business is basically creating the platform that aggregates all these things together. So if you're listening right now, <clears throat> I want an equity share. Yeah. And I think <laughs> it was, uh, I forgot what, it was one of the great barons, maybe uh, Rockefeller or, uh, one of them, but he said, he, who's the oil guy? Not, not Carnegie. That was a train steel. Who's the uh, oil? Rockefeller? Rockefeller. It was Rockefeller. And yeah, I think he said that, you know, why there's always going to be oil. There's always going to be people that want oil. So I want to be in the middle. You know, like, so with <laughs> sensors, you know, that whole thing is that you want to almost be in the middle of it, not necessarily at either end. Well, it's interesting because on some hands, I feel like we need these companies that are developing these techs piece by piece, right? Because that helps advance mm-hmm. us along to the next unified system. But we're not at the unified system yet, and so we're, we're, what we're doing is we're relying on early adopters to find out all the mistakes and the yeah. issues, and then hopefully some company can pull this all together and sell a system that works. Yeah, and but see, I guess I guess this almost looks like into the bigger ecosystem is that so you have a lot of these sensor companies, you have a lot of these giants, you know, you have the Googles, you have the Apples that are kind of doing these smart homes or whatever, and they're buying up companies left and right. So, I mean, I talked to a guy this weekend who he was saying that their company, they want to be acquired within the next, you know, whatever, 18 months. And they've been setting the company up for the past three years to get acquired because they're going to bring their tech to a certain point where they can get to, you know, that point and then sell it. And then they can figure out all the integrations on the bigger scheme of it. So I think there's a lot of companies that are definitely seeing that as their exit and kind of maybe it slows it down, but at the same time, <laughs> it is what it is. So, well, trust me, in, in, in what? I would say 10 years, most homes are going to be pretty smart. Oh, I agree with that. I mean, we, we've talked about, certainly we've been early adopters here on the podcast about certain things. Uh, Mike and I own the Echo, the Amazon Echo, which is, again, the, I think the first step towards a talking home. You talk to it and it starts moving on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike is pointing at his Apple Watch, which is amazing. He still wears, considering how much he despises <laughs> yeah. it. First day in about two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
but we're, you know, we're certainly early adopters here. We like tech, it, but it is interesting to note that uh, just because it's there doesn't mean it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Yeah. So I wanted to bring up one last topic, which for me is about the dorkiest thing I will ever say on this podcast. And I don't believe I've talked about it on the podcast before. You could still turn back now. I could. <laughs> say, I could. No, I, ha- I have to continue. I will have to, say, I will have to say this actually might bring in listeners because I'm pretty sure it's a pretty loyal uh, fan base. So Th- that's die right. hard. <laughs> so I am. Uh, I. I am a large Star Trek fan. I do not wear costumes or anything like that, but I very much enjoyed the shows. I never really felt the need to own any kind of Star Trek memorabilia. Just not, you know, don't know if I'm that big of a fan. But at a Comic-Con this year, they there was a new product that's announced that's coming out in January 2016, which is being sold by ThinkGeek.com. And if you've never been on ThinkGeek.com, you should go instantly because there's a million really fun things on there. Uh, I'm supposed to go to the beach later this week. We're talking about picking up from thinking a 10-foot beach ball. They have a 10-foot inflatable beach ball, which is hilarious. And it's a lot of fun. It's like you play Indiana Jones dodging the stone on the beach. So anyways, I so so ThinkGeek is putting out Star Trek original series communicator, the uh the flip device that Kirk and Spock spoke into. But it's Bluetooth, right? So you have your phone in your pocket, and when it rings, it makes that little communicator sound. You flip that open your hand and you can talk. And then you, so you can have your conversation as if you're using the communicator and whatever. And the communicator is essentially just a portable speakerphone, really. It's, it's a perfect replica. It, it has lights and doodads and <laughs> spinny things and it makes all the original sounds. And it, it actually, I guess they even have pieces of certain conversation from the series built in so you can. So you can play it. Right. For some reason, I was just thrilled by this. I thought this was exciting. I said, 150 <laughs> bucks, I'm in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we'll have to see how, I'll have to see how it comes out, goes. It doesn't come out till January, but something about memorabilia, but something that's yet from the future. Functional memorabilia. Functional memorabilia. <laughs> would I ever use Future's it? Future's past. Here, here's the thing. <laughs> would, would I play with it for 10 minutes when I get it? Yes. Would I bring it into the office to geek out w- with some colleagues? Maybe. Would I actually use it on the street? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because you got you 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 actually realize now that in Star Trek nothing was private. Well, you yes, were just talking, <laughs> and so you're like, I can't live in this world that just everything is open. That, that was the other thing. I had not thought about what it was like to live in the Star Trek world until I actually thought about using this myself and realizing that. You know, and I'm sure for television purposes to make it easy, everything was in the open. It's a speakerphone. Like even when they're talking quietly, they're talking quietly into a speakerphone where the person's <laughs> talking back at full volume. <laughs> and so, and of course, flip phones went out of date like 20 years ago, but yet still, I'm fascinated. Actually, I think, uh, I forget which company is making a new flip phone, which runs Android on it. Really? The flip phone yeah. may be resurrected. See, this is even better though. Technically, the communicator is really a flick phone. Right, you just flick it open, and then you. <laughs> oh, so there's a difference between a flick and a flip now. That's all I'm saying. It's more rugged. You're getting real. It's like deep bop in it, there. the old bop it game. That was a great game. That was bop it, flick it, <laughs> twist it. Well, no, because because after you just get annoyed at somebody winning, you just freaking throw it at them. You know, this is true. You they, bop them on the head with it. What they really need, and, and I've seen samples of this online where somebody tried to build something similar as the next generation communicator badge. Right, you have the badge, you just tap it, mm-hmm. and you, you know, you call someone, and, and it's, but of course, then it's public conversation, and you're just once again tapping yeah. your chest. <laughs> or it, 
shut off. You know, <laughs> so, just, hey, we're just moving towards that open society where just, just everything's <laughs> out there. I know I'm gonna know what you guys are thinking all the time. Big it's brothers gonna, always yeah. listening. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna be big everything. You know, uh, def- big def- world. Definitely can't have client phone calls on a commu- <laughs> Star Trek communicator. So should we dive into the interview for our listeners? Absolutely. So. so this week we have Andrew Barton Williams in Placing Literature. Mike brought Andrew to us. Yeah, I met Andrew. Uh, we were both um, first round fellows at, through CT Innovations at C Click Fix, and um, yeah, we've been we've been friends for a, well a year and a half now. And uh, told him about the podcast and thought it would be a great interview to get him on. Um, I think there's a lot of value that you listeners can get from. You know where he is now to how the company was founded uh, and and financially backed. So hope you enjoy. A very different type of startup. Hmm? See you on the other side. All right, we're sitting here with Andrew Barden Williams, the founder of Placing Literature. Andrew, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your startup? Uh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, just point of clarification, co-founder. Uh, I have to make sure that people get correct uh, credit for, for the work that they've put in. That's that's fair. Yeah. Um, so I, there's three co-founders of Placing Literature. Uh, there's myself. I'm an author. There is uh, Kathleen Williams, who is a geographer. And then there is Stephen Young, who is our software engineer. Um, yeah, and basically Placing Literature is a crowdsourced website that maps novels that take place in real locations. Uh, so what that means is anyone with a Google login can log on to our site and map uh, the novels that they're reading. Um, so then if someone is reading, let's say, Sherlock Holmes or something like that, uh, they can go to our website and see all the locations that are in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, if they're reading uh, the, Great Gaps, uh, the Great Gatsby, they can go to... Um, you know, uh, East Neck and West Neck, um, I'm sorry, East, East Egg and West Egg, um, and see the locations in, uh, the Great Gatsby. Uh, people can, um, uh, map the locations of their own novels that they're, they're writing. Um, it's really a, a, a clearinghouse of, uh, geo-based literary information that we're, we're trying to put together. So, so is, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey included as well? Uh, there is. Someone did map Fifty Shades of Grey, um, unfortunately. I'm, um, I'm, I'm not asking for myself. No, oh, sure, sure. Really? No, I just... Whatever. <laughs> we're not judging here. <laughs> no judging. But maybe we should do one right now. You know, Dave, you're an avid fan of Fifty Shades. Maybe you can actually <laughs> map a scene right here. That would be fantastic. I think we should do that. <laughs> See, what about uh, fictional locations? So, so uh, Hogwarts, Harry Potter? You know, Harry Potter has been mapped on Placing Literature, but only the real locations in Harry Potter. So that is uh, the train station that they uh, they arrive at in London in order to, to make it to Hogwarts. Is that platform nine and three quarters? It is. <laughs> did, it is. Did you, did you see that nice transition away from Fifty Shades of Grey? <laughs> that, was, that was smooth. None of our listeners noticed. I'm sure fla- they didn't. It was flawless. It was unbelievable. Thank you. But yeah, I mean, we have we have people that have mapped everything from Shakespeare to Twilight. Um, you know, Jack Kerouac to J.D. Salinger. Forty um, percent of our users are outside the U.S., so we have people that are mapping in different languages uh, all over the world. Uh, Catalan is a very popular language on our website. Strangely enough, uh, Barcelona is one of our most popular cities. Uh, Australia is also um, a very robust map that we have. Uh, you know, people are just um, having fun with it. You know, reading novels, uh, finding the the real locations where these fictional stories take place, and and mapping them and sharing them with their friends. I, 
is there a uh, is there a continent that has not been mapped yet? Um, you know, is Antarctica basically? Are yeah, there- Antarctica has been been mapped. Um, I could not tell you right now off the top of my head what book it is. Uh, there's going to be a zillion stories about like McMurdo Station. And, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it is McMurdo Station. I don't know the book, but I know that that is the place that has been mapped. The North Pole has been mapped as well because there's a lot of Santa Claus stories out sure. there. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, is real. He is real. He is absolutely real. Right. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I mean, most of our locations are in uh, you know North America, Europe, Australia. Um, so South America, Africa, and Asia still need to be kind of filled in a little bit, but we are making inroads. We we have a partnership with a publishing company uh, down in uh, Zimbabwe. They are working on a Zimbabwean map for us. Um, and uh, we're also uh, talking to a couple people down in South America. I just did an interview with uh, La Nation, uh, which is a popular uh, news magazine in Argentina. And, um, you know, hopefully that results in some some places being mapped down there. Um, so, yeah, we're real excited about it. We're truly global, uh, which is um, very exciting. You know, we are based here in Connecticut in New Haven. Um, but, you know, it is real exciting that people all over the world have kind of discovered our site and are, and are using it. So have you heard feedback from travelers who have used it? So I, I think one of the coolest things about it would be to, you know, I've, well, I don't know, I read a lot of journal different things besides 50 shades of gray and uh i you know i think it'd be great to be say traveling in europe um and seeing some of the castles there and then you know flipping to uh placing literature and seeing the various events that were uh you know had been written about those places yeah absolutely i mean you know if you think about the fairy tales right you know uh the brothers Grimm, they they wrote all sorts of um you know, tales that take place in castles all over, you know, Central Europe, you know, Germany, Switzerland, Austria. And, um, you know, it's really about placemaking, right? You know, you can go to a, a castle and it looks beautiful. And as Americans, we don't have castles over here. So we, we go over there and we're, we're amazed by them. But castles are honestly a dime a dozen over there. Um, <laughs> but if someone goes to, you know, a castle and then all of a sudden they realize, hey, this is the Cinderella castle or this is the Sleeping Beauty castle, it kind of makes it that much more... Um, interesting, you know. Um, it's, it's not just any other castle that is, um, you know, on, on, on someone's itinerary. Um, you, you know, you can you can actually go and you can say, okay, this is where Sleeping Beauty took place. I know that story, and um, so that's an example of art giving more meaning to a place. Um, and w- you know, which is something that we're very um, interested in is is, is place making and um, you know, not only enhancing the book that the books that people are reading, but also enhancing the places that people are visiting. I'm actually really happy to see this about books because you see this with movies all the time, right? I mean, people go to New Zealand to take the Hobbit tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you know, other various places who have you know, filmed in movies. And frankly, you know, if they could show me uh, a place where they filmed The Princess Bride, I'd probably be there in a second. But uh, it's... Um, you know, but for books is great because the fact is I read a lot more books than I see movies, and and I'm not really I'm, I don't I really done movie tourism. Uh, I was I was thinking of uh, Salzburg, Vienna for um, the Sound of Music, mm-hmm. and that's very that's another popular movie destination. But I'm not really much of a movie tourist, but I could be a book tourist, and I think it'd be fascinating to have the tools available to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are cities that have a really rich literary heritage. Uh, Dublin really comes to mind. Uh, you talk about, you know, James Joyce and, and, you know, all those guys. And they actually have walking tours where um, actors from the Trinity School of Drama will actually take you around to all the different places in Dublin 
which incidentally are all pubs. <laughs> and you go and you order a beer and they actually act out the scenes that take place in those pubs. Hmm. And, you know, this information exists all over the place. You know, like there are city, ma- um, city literary maps of Dublin, of London, of San Francisco, of New York. There are book maps, Eat, Pray, Love, um, you know, uh, John Carr, um, uh, you know, Michael Crichton. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can look these, these things up. But no one has really collected all of this information in one website. Uh, and that's really what we want to do. We really want to be the clearinghouse for all of this different types of, of uh, geo-based literary information, which is why we're really actively going out and partnering with uh, people who are creating these maps. Um, right here in Hartford, we, we, we partnered with the Mark Twain House and Museum. They actually came and uh, they mapped all of Mark Twain's entire catalog. And we think of Mark Twain as the classic American writer, you know, Huck Finn, um, uh, Tom Sawyer, uh, but he actually wrote a lot of travel books as well. Hmm. And um, you know, he he wrote books that take place all over the world. If you go to our website, uh, right on our homepage, we have a link to the Mark Twain collection, and it actually, um, you know, probably two thirds of it is outside the United States. Um, so we're really partnering with all of these these organizations who have a vested interest in you know promoting certain types of literature, certain places, um, you know, tourist organizations, museums, you know, things like that. Um, you know who really uh, you know want to want to promote uh, certain types of literature and, where, and and you know where they take place. Well, take us back a step. How did you get started? Yeah, we actually uh, were founded or were funded by the Arts Council of Greater New Haven. Uh, we were part of the Reintegrate uh, program. Uh, that was a program uh, three years ago that sought to connect artists and uh, scientists to create projects and. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an author, so I was the artist in this situation. My sister-in-law, Kathleen Williams, was the uh, scientist. She's a geographer. She just got her Ph.D. in geography from the uh, University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And, um, you know, we had always talked about, you know, what place means to us in our different worlds. Uh, I would talk about place as it relates to an author. And she would talk about place that relates to a geographer. And, you know, we would do this over the, the dinner table when, you know, we were visiting my parents over Thanksgiving or Christmas or something like that. So so when we heard about this program uh, through the Arts Council of Greater New Haven, um, it was just a, a, an obvious fit. And we decided that we were going to study um, locations in literature. And um, we hired a friend of ours, um, a guy in San Francisco, his name is Steve Young. He's a software engineer. He used to work for Google. And uh, we asked him to create a, an online platform that we could use uh, to kind of share data because at the time she was at school in Milwaukee and I was here in New Haven. And we, um, you know, we just needed a, a platform to be able to share data. So he created this website for us. And after he showed it to us, we were like, this is really amazing. This needs to be public. We need to launch this as a crowdsourcing website to allow anyone to come in and map the novels that they're reading, to view the locations of the novels that they want to read, um, or to discover new books. You know, if someone wants to, um, someone is going on vacation to London and they want to read a book that takes place in London, they can go to our website and they do that. We just thought that there's just so many different applications for this that we just, um, you know, it, it would have been silly not to, to launch this publicly as a company. So we launched at the Arts and Ideas Festival in 2013. And, um, you know, immediately, you know, the, the day after we, we launched publicly as, as a website. And in the two years since, we've had 3,000 places that have been mapped by users all over the world. And, and like I said before, it's everything from Shakespeare, the Bible, 
um, you know, Jack Kerouac, Hemingway, um, you know, to, you know, lesser known, um, you know, novels and short stories. It, it's just been really incredible. So, so have you mapped your own novel? I have ma- mapped my own novel. Um, actually, uh, that, that actually did kind of lead up to creating Placing Literature. Um, I, I self-published my novel um, back in 2012. And as part of my marketing campaign, I actually created a Google map of learning to hate. And um, within... 48 hours, I had a thousand views of it wow. without doing any marketing. I just, I just basically mapped it and put it out there. And I guess, um, it was just in the queue of most recent maps, um, on their, on the main site or something. And, uh, a thousand people viewed it in 48 hours. And I just thought this is amazing. Uh, I don't know why other authors don't do this. So we really wanted to create a platform to allow people to do that. So before Connecticut, you were out in California, correct? I was. I was out in California for 12 years uh, before moving out here to Connecticut. Uh, my wife is from Connecticut. She's from the Danbury area. And, um, yeah, we wanted to move back to be closer to family. And, uh, you know, New Haven was really the place that we wanted to be. We thought it was very similar to Berkeley, you know, young, progressive city uh, with a really um, active arts community. And so, um, you know, within a couple weeks of moving to New Haven, um, I heard about this grant and applied for it. And now um, I'm an active member of the arts community. Um, You know, I I have all sorts of friends who are, you know, artists and authors and sculptors and um, spoken word artists. And, um, you know, it's been a great community to, uh, you know, to really get into. And, um, you know, the really, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, this, this grant that, we got from the arts council has really created a job here in new haven specifically for me um you know we got this ten thousand dollar grant and now i have a full-time job (laughs) um so a lot of people think you know oh arts funding you know doesn't really give back to the community or to the local economy um but placing literature really is the example um that it really can and i mean on top of that uh you know you can now turn just like Dave said. You could actually take the placing literature data and create a tour off of it, uh, which could actually create more money coming into the state and more jobs uh, in terms of tour guides and everything like that that revolve around the placing literature data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we want to be a tool that other people use, right? You know, we aren't going to go out there and create tours. We're not going to go out mm-hmm. there and create you know different maps. We want other people to create those things for themselves and to create tours based off of our data. Um, so, you know, the, um, you know, tourist, you know, office of New Haven could certainly put together a walking tour of, uh, literary places in New Haven. Um, and, you know, we have been talking to them, uh, you know, about doing that. Uh, a couple months ago, I did a, uh, literary bus tour with RJ Julia's, which is a bookstore down in Madison. And, um, you know, we had, uh, you know, 20 people on this bus and we went around to all these different literary locations around New Haven. We we stopped at um, Pepe's Pizza, mm. uh, or Pepe's, I should say, um, and, uh, you know, had some pizza there because uh, Thomas Pinchon's uh, Against the Day actually has yep. a scene that takes place in uh, Pepe's. And, uh, you know, we went to Yale uh, and talked about uh, a book that he wrote called Joe College that takes place there on campus. Um, the... Uh, my partner and docent for the tour is uh, Chris Arnott, um, who's lived in New Haven for, you know, 20, 30 years and has really studied these these kind of things. And so he had all sorts of short stories and, um, you know, novels that had taken place in the city. Uh, and then uh, actually last week, um, I started a uh, local literature book club called Get Lit in New Haven. 
uh, that is based at the uh, New Haven Free Public Library. And, um, you know, uh, we met down in the basement uh, last Wednesday, and we talked about uh, The Wedding of the Two-Headed Woman, which is a, a book by Alice Madison that takes place in New Haven. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked about all, all the different locations that she talks about in her book. And uh, it was a really interesting look, uh, discussion about uh, the literary heritage of New Haven. You know, it, it, is, a, it is a small city, 150,000 people, uh, I think less than that. And um, yet all these great books have, have taken place in the city. I want to go back to the idea of uh, funding through the arts for the moment, because I really find this fascinating. One thing that we've hit over and over again on the podcast is these companies that come from very specific areas. Um, we were discussing about uh, UConn School of Nursing had, a con- had a, their first entrepreneur contest this past year and focusing on what nursing students were seeing in the hospitals that were needed or, or whatever kind of facility they were working in. Um, and one thing you keep seeing is that people in their various areas, whatever it is that interests them, find find something that the that the is a solution that, to a problem that nobody had really addressed yet, or was a solution to a problem nobody had even thought of yet. And uh, they come out of these communities, and sometimes they sort of get put into the funnel of regular tech companies, and and they have to go through that process. But more often than not, there's resources in the area that they come out of. And I think it's an important facet of, of companies looking for help and looking for funding and looking for other types of asks, um, whether it be resources or mentors and so on. Um, and that you were able to get funding, you know, through an arts grant for this company. And it is, it's a functional company and it's developing a product and, and the product is available for use, but it is at the same time, um, you know, at the same time an art project. And, and it really is a, it very much, you know, f- feels a, a passion between you and, and the people you work with about, um, you know, about literature and, and expanding people's interest in it beyond, say, just reading the book, but really feeling the book. Um, I think that's really important for people out there to, to, to understand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, um, you know, this grant that we got through the Arts Council did create a job, but it, it also created an awareness of literary places uh, around the state of Connecticut. Um, and I think that's um, something not to be overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it leads to tourism. It leads to um, you know, uh, you know, celebrating heritage. Um, you know, all, there are all sorts of benefits to that. Uh, besides, you know, adding jobs, adding to the economy, you know, things like that. It's all about placemaking, um, which is uh, you know something that's really important to the state right now. Um, I'm involved with this group um, up here uh, through the state house um, about placemaking. Uh, it's through the tourism office. And basically, uh, a lot of uh, people from arts organizations all over the state have come together and have created this advisory committee uh, to advise the state on how to create interesting places to live, work, and play here in Connecticut. And placing literature feeds right into that, um, you know, showing people that, you know, art can actually contribute to a place. It doesn't have to be a mural on the wall. It can be a fictional story that takes place in a specific location that people know and they appreciate and leads to greater understanding of the book, but also of the place. And so where do you hope to go from here? What's going on with uh, placing literature currently? Yeah, so we are currently undergoing a complete site redesign. Uh, which we hope to launch in the next couple of months. Uh, we also have uh, some partnerships that we're very excited to announce. Um, I won't mention any names here on the podcast because it's a little premature, 
Um, but let's just say it's a large search company in Menlo Park, California, <laughs> <laughs> that we're very excited to partner with. Um, and yeah, just you know, um, you know, trying to get as many places mapped as possible and as interesting um, places mapped as possible, so people can really. Um, explore and discover new books that they may not have discovered uh, if it wasn't for placing literature. So speaking of books, what are you currently reading now? Ooh, what am I reading now? That is a good question. Um, well, I'm currently reading Alice Madison's The Wedding of the Two-Headed Woman because I'm, I'm involved in this book club. Um, is that about a bipolar bridezilla? <laughs> You'd think so. Uh, but no, it is about a bipolar uh, woman who moves to New Haven. Um, wasn't too far <laughs> so off. You weren't too far <laughs> off. Yeah. My God. Yeah. No. Uh, very interesting book, actually. Um, Alice is a, is a great author. She's written about five novels and um, uh, a couple short story collections. Um, she actually lives in New Haven. And uh, yeah, the wedding of the two headed woman is very interesting because uh, it's about this woman who moves to New Haven from Brooklyn and she marries a local, a guy who's grown up in New Haven, uh, who's lived there his entire life, who owns property in the city. And throughout the entire book, she's trying to figure out how to fit in. You know, what what does it mean to be from New Haven? And she goes to all these different locations um, and, uh, you know, lots of different restaurants that people from New Haven will know. uh, Lots of different, you know, parks and, uh, you know, bicycle trails and jogging trails and things like that. As she's trying to figure out, you know, how she fits into this this strange new world that she's kind of thrust into. And um, as part of her coping mechanism, she does two things. She has an affair with a Yale professor. Um, so you kind of have the dynamic between the, the towns and the gowns, right? Boy, that's so common. Uh, if I had a nickel for every coping mechanism like that that I've heard of. So. I know, right? Yeah, um, yeah so, she, she has, so she's married to this local guy, and she's having an affair with a Yale professor. And if anyone from New Haven knows that that's, that's this huge theme in the city, right? You have these two communities basically living on top of each other. Uh, the other coping me- uh, coping mechanism she uses is that she creates um, this group that puts together a play uh, called The Wedding of the Two-Headed Woman, and it's based on a magazine article that they had found. It's kind of like an Onion type of ma- uh, type of article mm-hmm. or like a tabloid or something like that about this woman, these, these um, you know Siamese twins who um, end up marrying a set of twins or something like that. Um, and so they basically create this this play around that, and that's so New Haven. I mean, that's that's like when you think of New Haven, that's what that's what art people in New Haven do. They create performances and plays based on really strange events. Um, and so throughout the book, you know, she's kind of going back and forth between these two two different things. And at the end end of the book, she goes up on top of East Rock, and um, as you know, there's a huge view of the entire city. And she's looking at, you know, downtown and Yale and the harbor and the sound and the valley and West Rock is across uh, the valley. And she realizes that being from New Haven is all of these things. It's, it's a combination of all just these things. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Oh, just, absolutely. Spoiler alert. Yes. I thought she was going to jump. I thought so, too. <laughs> but uh, but either way, you know, if the ending is jumping or, you know, calm acceptance of uh, multi-tiered society, I still think we should give a spoiler alert. All right. Oh. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So, so we created this um, 
this book club basically um, around this book. Um, you know, you know, we're going to do it over the over the course of um, well, hopefully ongoing. But uh, over the course of the summer, we're going to be studying this one book. Last week, we talked about the locations in this book. Um, this upcoming Wednesday, we're actually going to talk about. Um, murder in New Haven because murder is a big theme uh, throughout the book and then the following week Alice is actually going to come to the book club and give a reading and answer questions uh, for everyone who attends um, so it's really you know kind of tying local literature um, with you know community trying to get people together to talk about you know fictional stories that take place in their own backyard and do you do you have a habit of mapping every book you read now? <coughs> I kind of do, yeah, <laughs> which is kind of annoying. Um, yeah, I actually have this this uh, this spreadsheet that I've created, and I print out a bunch of copies. And as I'm reading my Kindle, I have um, you know several sheets that I have, and as I come to a place that I know is a real location, I'll write it down and a couple notes about what happens there, so I can later go back to the site and actually map it. So, I mean. You obviously mapped your own novel, um, and you've seen kind of the benefits of using placing literature as a tool to actually drive traffic for your own your own novel. Um, you know, are you starting to work? Have you been working with authors and kind of sharing how important and how valuable this could be? We have. We actually highlight two authors uh, a month. Uh, one independently published author, because I'm a big believer in in, in self published books. Being a self published author myself. And also uh, one author that is tr- uh, traditionally published, and we highlight these authors as they map their own books, and um, we, we we tweet out their locations to all of our users. They tweet out their locations to all of their users. We post on Facebook, and we, you know we really promote. We have a we have a link on. So every scene card that we have has a link to. Um, uh, someone's ability to to purchase the book. We have a partnership with RJ Julia's down in Madison, um, so that link goes to their e-commerce site. And so, if someone wants to buy that book, um, you know they get they get help. So, you know, we're also helping you know the local economy in that way as well. Um, but yeah, you know, just trying to you know promote uh, the site among authors is a really big focus for us right now, and just showing people that um, you know author discovery um, can take place by location, not just, you know, through Goodreads or Amazon or, you know, some of those other author discovery sites. Great. And where do you see placing literature going in the future? What would your dream for it be? Yeah. Um, you know, me personally can only take it so far, you know, uh, I'm just an author. Um, I don't consider myself a businessman or an entrepreneur or anything like that. Um, so I'm, you know, at a certain point I'm going to need some help. Um, now, whether that's through investment or acquisition or something like that, um, you know, that's that's up to the fates, I guess. Um, but, you know, at some point we are going to need more resources. We're going to need, you know, more money. We're going to be able to, you know, we're going to have to hire people and, you know, get some someone who, um, you know, has, has, has done this before. And that's really, um, you know, where we're, we're kind of going at this point. Fantastic. Excellent. So if people want to learn more about Placing Literature, uh, where do they go? Placingliterature.com. Uh, we have a Facebook page, Facebook slash Placing Literature. Uh, we also have a Twitter handle, at Placing Lit. Uh, we have a blog, wordpress.placingliterature.com. Um, yeah, uh, you know, please, everyone who's listening right now, you know, please map the novels that you're reading. If you're writing a book, you know, map that. Share it with your friends. Um yeah, it's it's really an exciting site. Um, you know, people are using it and having fun, and you know, discovering uh, new places and new books. And while you're here, why don't you give us a uh, a brief uh, overview of your book? 
my book. Oh my goodness. Um, so learning to hate, it's actually spelled H A I G H T, uh, as in the neighborhood in San Francisco. And it's basically a coming of age novel about, uh, a guy who moves up to California to, to make a name for himself. He becomes a newspaper reporter and his way to do that is he, he's gonna, he's gonna, um, write, uh, the true story behind this infamous, uh, character in the hate Ashbury, this, this, uh, this guy who's who's kind of lived through it all. You know, he was a he was a hippie. He was a beat. He was a a, a hipster. Um, and uh, you know, this 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 main character is gonna make a name for himself by getting down you know to the real truth behind him. Um, but uh, it doesn't exactly work out as he planned. And uh, you know, the two of them end up learning a lot from each other along the way. Fantastic. Any other novels in the works right now? I am. I'm, I am working on my second novel right now. Um, you know, it's probably not going to come out anytime soon, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. Fifty Shades of New Haven Blue. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, thanks for being on, Andrew. Quite, we appreciate it. <laughs> Sorry for the letdown, Dave. <laughs> Damn. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you get a chance, uh, check out Andrew's novel, which I'm sure is available on uh, Amazon. It is available on uh, Amazon, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, uh, Smashwords, pretty much anywhere that you can buy uh, an ebook. Um, my novel is available. Great, and join. Uh, check check out Placing Literature. Map a few books. Uh, continue building that site and continue to help our community. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, guys. Welcome back. I hope everyone enjoyed that interview with Andrew Barden-Williams and Placing Literature. Really interesting, the synergy between arts and technology. Uh, so we challenge you to, to go to their website and uh, map a, a location of a book. Anyone have anything else to say? I really appreciated what Andrew had to say. It's a very interesting idea, and I love the fact that it was backed by an arts mm-hmm. grant. It's a new take. We always talk about VCs and angel investors and such, and you really need to look at where your company comes out of and what special place there may be for your company in that world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and it just I think there's a lot of opportunity for the kind of the travel side of it too, um, and just kind of connecting with people to kind of you know be in the movie. You know, yeah. I mean, in the in the movie, well, I've been thinking about Lord of the Rings <laughs> down in you know, New Zealand. Yeah, but, well, you, you think you about know? all these things. People travel to Salzburg, Austria, yeah. just because of the sound of music. Yeah. I mean, yeah. People travel all over the place. There's a huge tourism element mm-hmm. um, just because of books that they've read. Well, I'm just thinking is that they would just literally stand in that spot and just like envision it around them. Because mm-hmm. I mean, that's what yeah. you do with a book. You know, you're, you're, it's in your head. You're, you're going, and then you, you can actually stand there and, and do it. So I know Andrew has a lot more stuff up his sleeve too. So I'm excited for him to to share that with the world. Um, so all you listeners out there, go to Placing Lit, tag a location, read some more books. And check out uh, some other podcasts. And oh, oh my God, what? Don't check out other podcasts. What? I want them to. I want them to. Can they rate or review? They could rate. They and can review. rate and review. We, have we called them to action? No, 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 no. We should. No, we definitely. So should, yeah. Right? So so I mean. So we're talking about it right now. But here's the call to action, everyone. Here's the CTA. If you can please go to iTunes and give us a rating or a review and or both, that would be phenomenal. Obviously, that helps us get into the uh, rankings of iTunes. We're really trying to, you know, really get up there. So we need some, uh, we need some people to rate us and review us. Um, give us your honest opinion and let us know um, what we can do, what we can do better, and what we're doing good uh, as it is. Because we're obviously trying to get better at this. So. And tell your friends, tell your family. The more listeners, the better. Yep. 
Well, thank you very much. We look forward to talking to you next week. Ciao. You've just listened to the CT Startup Podcast. You can find us on iTunes or check out our webpage at ctstartup.com where you can find all our social media links. And please, please leave us your feedback. Special thanks to our production team, Kate Rupart, Dylan Gilliatt, and Evan Dobis, as well as our equipment and marketing sponsor, Mirtha Kalina, LLP. 